Now, just to clarify, I'm not pro-atomic bombs, but it is ironic. <laughs> Hot take. Hot take, yeah. Agnes Reese. <laughs> I'm Charlie Sohn, a screenwriter and journalist. I'm Agnes Reese, a pop singer and songwriter. And this is Mysteries of the Euroverse. On today's episode, we're covering the road to the grand final. First, we deep dive into the fundamental power imbalance at the core of how Eurovision is structured. Second, we talk to two Eurovision acts with fascinating roads to the grand final, the UK's Sally Ann Triplett and Ukraine's Tvorchi. Third, Vox senior foreign policy correspondent Josh Keating stops by to explore how international institutions balance their ideals with their need for the support of the powerful in a game we're calling Size Matters with Josh Keating. Take a look behind the scenes At all the scandal songs and queens So come along as we traverse All the mysteries of the Euroverse All the mysteries of the Euroverse Okay, we are back for another episode of Mysteries of the Euroverse. And Magnus, what are we talking about today? Well, we go back to 1956 when the competition started. Seven countries. Very easy. If anything, you need filler material yes. to make it an evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This year, it's 37. So the question becomes, how do you call all of these countries down to the number that will fit into one night of programming? Eurovision and the EBU over the years have experimented with different ways of choosing which acts make it to the grand finale. They always make it look like technocratic proceduralism, right? Totally. If, uh, if anything, I think this is a real corollary to our um, televote versus jury episode, right? What is the right way to select your winner? I think the juries versus televote is a perfect example. Underneath the individual decisions, there is always a game that has to do with power. There is a real corollary to these other post-war uh, European institutions, right? All of these institutions were set up with the idea that rules should be applied consistently. Internationally, we should have laws that every country has to follow. But the problem is that you need someone to fund you as an institution. And that's what you see with Eurovision. You think back to the League of Nations, right? right. And, and I just want to clarify, that's not a Marvel movie. Nor an interval act at uh, Eurovision. <laughs> you look at the League of Nations and why that failed, right? It just did not have the participation of the countries with the big militaries and with the tons of funding that they would have needed to keep the lights on. Right. So to, to go back to the Marvel movie, yeah. it means that to successfully have the League of Nations... You needed Captain America and James Bond. Yes, I didn't understand any of that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that's what the UN did, right? So the UN had this group of countries that were called the Four Powers. Sometimes they were called the Big Four, which I think our listeners might want to remember. The US, the UK, the Soviet Union, and China. Without significant support within the Big Four. Yeah, uh, nothing can happen. Because of that, the design of the UN is that these countries get special privileges, right? And it and it leads to some really awkward situations, right? How do you end up with that the country that has dropped the most atomic bombs are the ones <laughs> overseeing if other people are making atomic bombs? Yeah. All that's to say that, no, today is not an episode about atomic bombs. No, it's not an episode about the UN either. It's about where 
the inspiration for the UN came from Eurovision. Did I get that right? Uh, yes, Sen that's Ramo, my turn under, into Eurovision, Eurovision, turn into yeah. the UN. But things do get messy in the early 90s because we had the fall of the Soviet Union. We had the breakup of Yugoslavia. And suddenly there were all of these countries that were joining these previously Western European institutions. And each of these institutions had to think about how they are going to treat their newest members. Right. And that also included the queer cousin. Eurovision. Exactly. So we get to this point where we can't fit everyone in on one night. Yes. That's when we get to 1993, a year we've talked about previously, because you had the pre-selection for Mill Street, which was like a pre-qualifying round based on countries that had recently become independent from either uh, being part of Yugoslavia or the Soviet Union. It was seven countries and they had to compete for three slots. So pre-selection for Mill Street is a one-off because it's really to set up what's to come, which is a relegation process. Magnus, what is a relegation process? What a great question, Charlie. So a relegation process is essentially where you say the bottom X amount of countries, uh, they don't get into the competition the next year. But whoever was out are automatically back in. So essentially how that works is that if you do really well in the competition, you can be in it every year. If you do poorly, you will max be out of the competition for one year and then be back in. Hearing that this new system is introduced, you're going to expect that the EBU is going to start making changes to it, right? To perfect it, to make everybody happy, to get the best broadcast. But the change that they made starts Oslo 1996. The year before, Germany's score was low enough that they would not have been in the Eurovision broadcast. Right. So Uh, bad score for Germany in 1995. Now we're planning 1996. Oopsie. One of our big funders is not going to be there. Are they going to be happy putting a lot of money into something that we've said they can't be in? So the rules-based consistent EBU announces that suddenly... This relegation system is not happening. And instead, they're going to introduce a audio-only qualification round that's broadcast on the radio for all 29 countries, except for the host country, Norway, who obviously would you'd want them in the broadcast if they're hosting the show. So completely chucked the entire system out. They come up with this and they go, yes, obviously now Germany will get in. We will have our cash cow. And what happens? Germany still fails to make it in. So they changed the relegation system. So it was not based on how your country did the previous year. Now it's an average of a country's past four or five years. Right. And then the problem with that becomes that say a country has one really poor performance, they can now be stuck out of the competition for a really long time. Right. Because that one bad performance can hurt their average score for the next five years. We're talking about a totally incoherent system that is purely to keep a country like Germany in. This is the thing that I think frustrates people about, quote unquote, the rules-based international order, is that it's like someone is lying to your face. No one can say anything because then, like, we'll acknowledge that Santa Claus isn't real. What? And- that was hey. dad? <laughs> so this four or five year average rule was obviously a disaster. Yes. So 
what happened? In the year 2000, the competition implements something that's going to sound familiar, the big four. And the big four was Germany, UK, Spain, and France. The big four automatically qualifies for the grand final. Now, because they created this big four and now had that guarantee, the EBU felt good going back to the old relegation system. But then more countries were added. You have the big four, auto-qualify. Host country, auto-qualify. Top 10 countries from last year, auto-qualify. Everyone else, relegation system. I mean, it's getting complicated. So we needed something better. So this is in 2004. What was that better thing, Magnus? So they implemented the semifinal. In 2008, the one semifinal was expanded to two semifinals. Right. And what happened is that except for the winning country, which traditionally hosts, the 10 auto qualifiers gone. The big four, then just to look ahead, in 2011 became the big five when Italy rejoined. You see the EBU making all of these crazy procedural changes to keep a country like Germany on the broadcast. The natural thing is to ask why. It comes down to money, but it comes down to money in two specific ways. There are broadcaster fees that these broadcasters pay in to the EBU, but then there is audience, which then translates to sponsorship deals, right? It's, it's both about how many people are watching and who's watching in terms of their ability to buy. Things. Right, because you go, oh, sorry, Germany didn't qualify this year, but San Marino did. And they're like, great, that's a drop in like 20 million viewers. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, in many ways, you can say it's totally fair, to have these broadcasters pay different amounts, it's also the only way these smaller ones could participate. Right. So on one side, I'm like, I appreciate the EBU creating a system that makes it possible for the smaller countries to participate. However, they've also then inadvertently created a system where you go, well, if I lose that country, I can afford it. If I lose that country, I can't. Right. And this is where we get to that sort of direct corollary to what we were talking about earlier, right? Like the Security Council had their own relegation slots. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like our entire point is rational voting, is transparency, is everybody's treated the same. And then it's like, no, we can enforce actions against a certain set of countries. But then there's this other category, you know? It's a major problem for even something like Eurovision, where, you know, you go on any of these Reddit threads and fans in Eastern Europe are not blind to the way the system works, and it does lead to a certain credibility gap. I feel like the EBU is fairly transparent about what that is. I mean, oh, they yeah. literally will say, like, they're called the big five because they're the big five funders, you know? We don't like to tell ourselves stories that are like, yeah, we have high ideals that we throw out the window when we need to. We have to come up with a reason. When I talked to the EBU Deputy Director okay. General and I asked about the big five, what he said was, well, actually, when you think about it, it's really unfair to the big five countries, too. So it kind of evens out. And this argument sure. is a thing that... I can buy as far as it goes, which is that, like, if you don't participate in the semifinals, people have one less chance to see your song. I buy that argument in every other way than the way he used it. <laughs> These big five countries make the decisions no, for right. the EBU. They wouldn't keep it in place if it wasn't a big advantage. They wouldn't make their participation potentially dependent 
Right. Or their higher participation fees potentially dependent on privileges sure. if they didn't think they were privileges. I was reading this Gar- Guardian article from 2008. There was a quote from an EBU official. That he was talking about the big five. And he entertained the idea that on the other side, there is political block voting. This idea emerges from around the same time where we started this story. The entrance of the Soviet well, countries into... Eurovision. Well, the idea of block voting is that obviously like neighboring countries are going to vote for each other. A lot of these Eastern European countries used to be a unit. Reality is that you find that the UK and Ireland vote for each other a lot. Norway, Sweden, and Denmark vote for each other a lot. Greece and Cyprus vote for each other a lot. And yes, Eastern European countries vote for each other a lot. I think Australia in 2015 is really, maybe that's my new hobby horse. Australia participated in Eurovision under special permission. And part of that special permission was they got to skip the semifinals. Well, all of these other countries have been swallowing this idea of we need this set of countries to keep the lights on. So they're going to get special privileges. But like, Everybody else is the same. I think it's important for context that, that so Australia have been knocking on the door for a long time. They basically decide, maybe we can like let them compete as a one-off, as a part of the celebration of the 60th anniversary. People receive their participation very positively. I really do want to separate Australia's participation in Eurovision, uh-huh. which, is, which is lovely. Why give Australia the special privilege that already is like kind of salt in the wound to a lot of these smaller countries. There's another element. Yeah. And this is where I get a lot more critical. And this brings us back to us in Liverpool. I saw this rumor on Twitter or something about this sort of a la carte price sheet for special effects at Eurovision. And I ended up speaking to someone who was working with a Norwegian delegation. And essentially, I got confirmed that this price sheet was correct. And you know what they've always said? Journalism happens six drinks in at a nightclub in Liverpool. I have always said that. (laughs) (laughs) For context, we're talking in the ballpark of 30,000 euros for 15 seconds of pyrotechnics. Yes. These things that are built into the Eurovision stage are things that they are still charging individual delegations for every time they happen. When I was doing some background checks on that PDF. On me? Because you were worried about... Yeah, I was like, do I trust this person? Yeah, yeah. I was hearing numbers that were like smaller countries cap out sometimes at around 200,000 euros for their performance. Well, a country like France was reaching like a million euros on that performance, right? right? Stieg Carlson, who's in charge of MGP, which is the national final that Norway runs. He told me, and this is a quote, we might end up with a competition where the most wealthy broadcasters win the audience with shows that the less wealthy broadcasters can't afford. That having been said, I think there is a tension here, right? The big five gets to skip the semifinals because the EBU really needs them in Eurovision in order for Eurovision to be well-funded. So that's unfairness one. Unfairness two is Eurovision is not helping out these smaller countries enough with their acts, creating an inequality between the big nations and the small nations. If you get rid of the big five and let's say lose some of those big countries, 
then there's no money in your budget to give everybody something equal. In fact, it gets more expensive for these smaller countries unless you want to scale down Eurovision well, entirely. And this is where it gets complicated because yeah. scaling down Eurovision is the last any one of us wants. Right. And that's always going to be this sort of never-ending tension. There's something fundamentally naive about expecting complete consistency. The writer, Masha Gessen, they were talking about Trump and they said something that really stuck with me, which was that we hate it when our politicians are hypocrites. And the appeal of Trump is he's not a hypocrite. He will say with his mouth the awful things that right. he is going to do, and then he will do them. But the thing that, that Trump teaches us is actually hypocrisy is simply that we have ideals that we think are really important and we fail to live up to them. Getting rid of hypocrisy is getting rid of those ideals. And it's not perfect. Yeah. And it will probably change more into the future. And I think for both of us, we, uh, you know, lean into this idea that Eurovision is the most successful when it does its absolute best to make sure that it can embrace everyone, big or small, to as equal of a degree as it possibly can. That striving is important because with those ideals, even when they don't live up, there is potential for the future. In modern times, has become what people love about Eurovision. It's the variety. It's the language exchange. So it's like you actually rely on a lot of the broadcasters with much smaller budgets. To, to make an interesting broadcast. Exactly. So it's worth subsidizing. So then let's throw it over to our interviews. We spoke with Sally Ann Triplett who uh, represented incredible. the UK not once but twice in a simpler time where this wasn't as complicated. We didn't have the semifinals and all that. If you look at where Sally's numbers placed, she would have made it through any semi. Oh, absolutely. And another interesting road to your vision is that if you win the competition, you ought to qualify for the following year. Right. And one of those people was Tvorchi. Tvorchi represented Ukraine in 2023 after they'd won in 2022. So you can imagine that in the unique situation in an ongoing war, a pretty unique and interesting road to the grand final. And then uh, we are speaking to Josh Keating, who is a senior foreign policy correspondent for Vox.com. We're playing a game with him uh, that examines the sort of core inequality at the heart of the big five. It's called Size Matters with Josh Keating. <laughs> yes. I cannot believe what we put him through. He's a serious journalist. But first, we're going to take a little peek into Sally Ann Triplett's two entries into Eurovision. Because I've got love enough. Yes, I've got love enough to do. We are here with the true legend, Sally Ann Triplett. Sally Ann Triplett is one of four British performers in the entire history of Eurovision to make it to the contest twice. And she's the only one who got there by winning the UK national finals both times. She's gone on to have a remarkable career in theater, notably Anything Goes, Guys and Dolls, and a truly inventive staging of Sweeney Todd. Sally Ann Triplett, welcome. Hello. What was that? I'm the only one to have done it winning the national. Yeah. So like Cliff Richards, that they were doing internal <gasps> selections then. Right. So he didn't have to compete for it. I'm pretty sure you're the only one who actually won a uh, song for Europe twice. You learn something new every day. I did not know that. So uh, <laughs> okay. thank you for telling me that. 
Uh, just <laughs> just when you walk into parties now, it's the first thing. Yeah, that's the first thing I'll say. Yeah, yeah. So just to to talk about your Eurovision experiences, uh, your first appearance was in 1980 with Prima Donna. At the time, you were still in college. I was 17. I was still at college, and I got the job. And I managed to fit it all in around college and all my classes. And on the Saturday night, we were at The Hague in um, Holland, representing the UK with Prima Donna. And on Monday morning, I was at my Megiddo jazz class at 9.30. And there were loads (laughs) of people missing from the class. And I was like, how come I can make it? And I'm almost sure that I'm probably the only person who is still in the business. So there you go. That's, you that's, have to go to your classes, guys. There you go. <laughs> yeah. A Song for Europe was incredibly close that year. Can you describe the scene? The BBC News came in at nine and nothing would get in the way of the BBC News starting at nine o'clock. There was a frantic discussion between the guys up in the control booth, the people on the floor and the people in it as to whether we would go around again or... They did the news oh and we would come back to it after the news. It, it, it was one of those moments where it was a really big, quick decision and they decided to go round and they did it so quickly. If you watch it back, people are like, so what do you want? You want Prima Donna? You want Maggie? Da, 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 da. And the winner is Prima Donna. And then we come back on and we sing it and then it's like, Vlug, the news. <laughs> the night before Eurovision, Prima Donna went out with Johnny Logan's band members and they Tried to get you drunk and ruin your performance? Well, Is that... were, I mean, they were kind of like tongue-in-cheek. Let's get them all drunk so they can't <laughs> sing. Johnny Logan was sensibly in his room having a nice kip. And me and Jane and Kate Robbins, we were down in the bar. And then anyway, we ended up going to our rooms, whatever. And then the next morning, Kate came in and she was like, I've lost my voice. Like this. And that's the day of the that's finals. the day of the finals. She did have me going just for half a second, <laughs> but it was good fun. The song plays third. Just thinking about like you at 17, that must have been such a whirlwind for you. If I was to do that now, I would be shaking in my boots. But when you're 17 and all you want to do is sing and dance around and be like an idiot, and show off. It was the greatest time of my life. I didn't know what it meant and I didn't really care. And it was just innocent. Come to two years later when everything goes mad and we're the bookies' favourite and we don't win because there's a Falklands war and there's a girl singing about a little piece. So <laughs> there you go. I mean, I, you see, you do our transitions for us, yeah. which is really incredible. I'm, just, I'm here to please. <laughs> yeah. Well, because my next question was going to be, how did you end up in Bordeaux? So this is an even better story. I was doing pantomime, which for the American people is a Christmas show. I was doing it with a guy called Steve. And the first time we ever sang together, he was on the other side of the room and we sang Corner of the Sky. And we looked at each other and we knew how to sing with each other. Anyway, we fell in love, started going out during the show. It was our last show. And I said to Steve, shall we meet at Hampstead Tube? And he said, I've just got one thing to do that day, but it won't take long. All I've got to do is walk down to Chalk Farm, which is a 10-minute walk, 
and I need to just sing for Nicola Martin because I was supposed to be in Bucks Fizz last year, but I had to pull out. And I said I would be in whatever band she did this year. <clears throat> so I've just got to sing and she's going to create the band around me. So I, I said, can I come with you? And so I sat in the waiting room. She came out with Nicola and she looked at me and she said, I know you. You were in Prima Donna two years ago. And she went, come in and sing with Steve. And of course, we had this connection that you can't buy and you can't train or rehearse for. We just knew. And she went, I want you two to represent our music at the Song for Europe. And we walked out. We spent the next three years together, but we walked around London knowing that we were the band in the Song for Europe. It was wild. I got to say that yeah, I, yeah. I feel like there's a movie here. This is like <laughs> love story ending up at Eurovision. Yeah, call oh. How was the second experience at Eurovision different? It-, it was just Steve and I, and we were like going out. We were in love and we had each other. The song was highly regarded, whereas Prima Donna got to number 48, I think, in the charts. Bardo got to number two, only pipped off the first position by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. We were always on the telly. We were always recognised. The competition was in England. So we were Bookie's favourites. No one else was near us. But the war and they all, all kind of went against us in the end. They couldn't not put a seventh because the song was, was so good. Live, it was a bit tricky. It was tricky to pull that off live. I love One Step Further so much. And I love both the live version and in its, its recorded form. The difference in the arrangement is really striking. The synths that you have on the recorded version are these production elements that firmly placed it in a very contemporary pop kind of world. And in Eurovision, particularly 82, like the full orchestra was there. The yeah. thing about our track was that Andy Hill was really influenced by ABBA. So when we did our vocals, each harmony was seven times. Seven of that, seven of that. So at some points there were 21 sallies. And what happens is when you get it condensed back down to one voice, it takes on a new sound. I have to say there's nothing I look for in music more than 21 sallies. So... You mentioned the Falklands War was partially responsible for One Step Further's results and how politics play into your vision as you see it. Back then, I had really no idea. I just kind of knew that that was going on. But nowadays, of course, it's just so obvious when the voting comes in that you're like, that country's going to give that country 12 points. And because of lots of things, one of them being Brexit, we have not been getting any votes except when... Someone comes along that is so damn good and such a good singer and such a lovely person that they can't help but give him 12 points over and over again. And that's when Sam just changed everything for us. His song Spaceman took a second place in 2022. Sam Ryder was part of this deal that BBC had with TAP. And I think people are very optimistic about it. And now after an... I would say, an unexpectedly poor result for May Muller, that deal has fallen apart. What do you think the problem was? I just don't think it was good enough. And I don't think the visuals were good enough. I don't think what she was wearing was good enough. She's great. And actually, the song is such an earworm. But the visuals 
watched it and thought, God, that was really dull compared to so many other things. The, the woman that won it is, to me, she's just a goddess. She doesn't have a violinist and some tumblers and some <laughs> Russian grannies. Yeah. She literally just enhances the song and it's like an acting piece. I think other countries in Europe, they pick one of their top performers and then before the Eurovision gets started, it's played on the radio everywhere and they've done a tour and right, they, yeah. they've done stadiums and so everyone knows them. It was such an iconic night of our year. It was this fantastic competition. We had Cliff Richard, we had Lulu, and then we just fell off the ball with it and it became a joke. Francis Raffel did it and Michael Ball did it, Lucy Jones from Wicked, theatrical people, which is a little bit frowned upon. And I know that because both my children are incredible musicians and their mummies in musical theatre and they're a little <laughs> bit like, oof, With, you know, in the nicest possible way. To go back to Bardo, we talked about One Step Further, hits number two on the charts. You release three more singles? Two more, Two yeah. more singles. And then you and Steve start a new band. When a band is created from nothing, that band have, have not come up with the music, the image, the vibe. I remember going to the A&R people and they said, what do you want to do next? And it was like, who are we? Sometimes we'd wear an Aaron jumper. The next minute I had like rags in my hair and we'd had like cowboy boots. We started playing pubs and playing our own music. We were on a program called The Tube. They had a signed band and an unsigned band every week. And one week, the unsigned band was Co-op City, which was our band. And the signed band was Tears for Fears. And it, honestly, I felt like we oh, were wow. the Beatles. We had our groove and we had our, our image and we had our sound and we had our everything. And it just didn't quite work. You and uh, Steve dated and remain friends to this day. Can you talk a little bit about your working and performing relationship with him? Was the mix of personal and professional part of the magic? Were there challenges? Oh God, no. It, challenges didn't, that word challenges didn't exist. That, literally that didn't exist back in That's the amazing. 1982. Times were different and we just enjoyed it and we went all over Europe, we went to Germany and did TV. People screaming all over the car for Steve, not for me, but just <laughs> fun, fun, fun. That's Truly. really amazing. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Sally. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank um, long live I, Eurovision. Yes, and may, long live Eurovision. May the US take it under their wings. <laughs> yes, exactly. yeah, Mind yeah, you, yeah. Australia's in it. What I mean, that's about. the thing at this point. They did an American Eurovision. It was called the American oh Song Contest. Oh my God, why? <laughs> and it was like, instead of countries competing, it was the states. And it's all going to sound the same. Well, not the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, it's not Basically. the same it's cultural exchange as that, you get. Yeah. <laughs> I love it when they sing in their own language. I love that. I will say on the American Song Con Contest, Florida did sing in, in its own language. Uh, it was really great. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> all right, Sally, thank you so thank much. You. This was really incredible. Oh, my incredible. pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> get out of my way, yeah, yeah. You have a great story about how you two met. We just basically met 
outside on the street. I came and tapped his shoulder and said, I want to check out my English skills and I can teach you some Ukrainian. We went to drink some beer and talking about our cultures. One year later, we just discovered that we can do music together. Can you talk about what you each thought about your vision when you were younger? Well, in short, uh, I didn't know about your vision until I came here uh, to Ukraine. I didn't have any exposure, I would say, to that type of thing. Three years after I arrived, I saw it for the first time. So I found out it was a song competition between different countries. I remember saying that time it would be nice to, you know, uh, experience uh, something like this. My story is different, (laughs) obviously, because I knew Eurovision since 2004 when I saw uh, Ruslana performing. She won first time for Ukraine with the wild dances. I was very impressed. I was still like a kid watching and seeing like, oh, what, what is lady doing? Jumping in like Xana, Princess of Warrior at that time was <laughs> going on the TV. Well, you were first selected for Eurovision in 2020 with Bonfire. You had the Eurovision performance ever since stops. The pandemic was type of shock that I just couldn't understand, you know. I felt like in a movie talking about pandemics. We knew that we can do something useful. We even wrote a jingle to stay home. Wait, 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 wait. Sing us that jingle. That's amazing. <laughs> It was like, you know, a few seconds, maybe. And they were just instruments, you know, around the house. And yeah, we were sitting like at <laughs> home. So we showed by our examples that uh, look, we took some spoons, made the beat, and then Jeffy said on the top of it, stay home, something like that. And it- we'll definitely be linking to that in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then moving forward, yeah, tell us a little bit about the origins of Heart of Steel as a song. Uh, how did you decide that as your entry? Let me put it shortly. We didn't make the song for the competition. We made the song like a year before we applied. We realized that the applications were ending and we thought maybe we should take that opportunity and just try one more time. It happened like in natural way because a lot of stuff happened with us very natural. I never met anyone just tapping on shoulder and this was once in my life and maybe Jeffy too. The same with Eurovision and even the music making. Heart of Steel had a strong message and we decided to apply with it to, first of all, inspire our people who are fighting and staying strong. No matter how hard it is, they continue fighting, defending families, land, and in general, all year. Because if we don't stop it here, it will go through next countries. What was it like recording that song? in the middle of everything that was going on. We had to make do with what we had. And sometimes the lighting goes off. And when when the alarm comes around, you got to stop work and go to the shelters. And, you know, the back and forth and all of that. I, I remember once Jeffrey said on the building flying fighters jets. I asked him if he saw that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they were just Ukrainian jets. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and wow. so we just went back to work. That must have been terrifying. I, I could go as far as saying I almost pissed myself, honestly. There's always a lot of conversation about what the role of an artist is in a time of crisis? As an artist right now, our main role is to use whatever platform or whatever influence you have to spread good, positive information. And we spoke to some other people outside of Ukraine, and so people got the wrong information about, you know, the current situation. Also, you can do a lot of good things like raising funds for different needs, like we did with United24, like to save basically newborn kids. That because women during the war given uh, birth too early and the kids having like weak hearts. So these incubators give them a chance to live. The grand finale of, of Eurovision, how did it feel to be on that stage at the same time 
Well, Ternopil was being bombed. When did you hear about that? Was it before the performance, after? Like, right before our performance. Like, we were, we were supposed to go on the stage. We were worrying for our, like, families who were staying in the city. Uh, and we transform all those emotions. You have now those three minutes on the stage. You should inspire people. So that's what we tried to do. And then after performance, we wrote, like, uh, name of the cities and showed it. So we wanted to support our people, not just in, in the specific city which was bombed, but in general, in all country, because they are bombed every day. Can you talk about Bordermos? We released it early when invasion started. Uh, we recorded this video in a theater because Russians bombed Mariupol theater. We wanted to say with this video that even when our theaters are bombing and destroying, we don't destroy, we build and we create. Thank you so much for your time and for speaking with us. It's been wonderful speaking with you again. Yeah, absolutely. It was great seeing you guys. Yeah, thank you for the great questions. Thank you. And, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for inviting us. And yes. uh, we had a great time talking to you guys. Eurovers. Eurovision's introduction of the Big Four, which then became the Big Five, created a two-tiered structure. The acts from the countries that pay the most money into the EBU get to skip the semifinals, while everyone else competes. However, there are some who go further, arguing that the rule is a necessary corrective to political bloc voting. These new Eastern European countries impulsively supporting each other based on cultural or political affinity and not, quote unquote, the quality of the music. So we've decided to test that theory with Vox senior policy correspondent Josh Keating. Josh has spent a decade and a half reporting on the current state of international affairs from countries including Iraq, Somalia, Russia, China, and Haiti for publications such as Slate, Foreign Policy, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, Politico, The Guardian, and more. And Josh's book, Invisible Countries, explores uh, the fledgling nations that aren't recognized by the major European institutions like the UN or as we talk about on this podcast, Eurovision. Um, also, I want to say on a personal note, Josh is a great guest, not only for his foreign policy reporting experience. He is a killer vibraphone player. And I'm pretty sure the first person I ever wrote a song with. It's true. Yeah. And not only did I write my first song with Josh, he then wrote the overture for the first musical I ever wrote. It was like, oh my goodness. I also love that your way of singing that is the same voice as you do when you do a lane stretch. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. You thought that was an impression? <laughs> I will say, Josh is, I think, our first guest who has heard the podcast before coming on the episode. Don't give well me an advantage. I'm going to destroy Brooke Gladstone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh, we're going to play you two songs from the same year. One yeah. of those songs is an entry from one of the big five countries. And the other is from one of those Eastern European countries that often get accused of block voting. In these clips, the big five entry got a free pass to the finale where it did not do very well. And the song from the Eastern European country which again had to compete in the semis, failed to qualify for the finale at all. In other words, this is a number that was bumped by the big five. Josh, you're going to guess which number is which. And okay. then the idea of this game is we're going to have a bit of a conversation about how the big five rule is affecting music at Eurovision in the Got finale. It. This game, Josh, about the big five right. is one that we're calling Size Matters with Josh Keating. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> what do you know about Eurovision going into this? I used to work on this blog for foreign policy called Passport. We tended to do like sort of quirky, weird things. We had a writer who was like a specialist in like Balkan politics. She like pitched a story. It was like, okay, Josh, so on Eurovision, there was a singing turkey that was like insulting all the countries, but that wasn't the controversy. The controversy was that the turkey said Macedonia instead of former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, which at the time was its official name. And like a lot of Greeks are really upset about it. And I was like, you have to back up four steps because I don't understand <laughs> half the words you just said. <laughs> I love an international competition. Like I love the Olympics. The thing is the Olympics does not have any singing turkeys as far as I know. Yeah, and that's yeah. really... I haven't followed sports in a while. But... <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I've been looking for an exercise that I can... <laughs> <laughs> what are the big five countries in Eurovision, if you have to guess, Josh? Germany, France, England, Italy? Oh my Spain? God. Nailed it. You nailed it. The thing that almost threw me is, isn't Sweden the Eurovision power? In a way that kind of points to the core of it. Sweden does really well at Eurovision because they have all the, the producers and the songwriters and stuff. But the big five is not about that. Like the UK is terrible at Eurovision. When Sweden didn't make it to the finals? That must have been a revolution. Wait, so would you say that was Sweden's Waterloo? <laughs> uh, so we're going to start with Eurovision 2015, Josh. Okay, and... so this is clip one? Yes. Okay. Bachelorette party cops dancing. <laughs> oh, All right. She just pulled his shirt off. I want what I want. Okay, let's, let's try two. <laughs> Don't get on the wrong train. Don't fly no old plane. Don't go out in the pouring rain. You might get wet. I'd be upset. You're bound to get sneezing. Oh, he's trying to do like an American accent. Take good care with <laughs> it, it looks kind of like the Oscar stage. I guess they're going for like a Roaring Twenties jazz age thing, but they're doing like sort of fake American Southern accents. So the authenticity isn't quite there for you on this second clip. Probably like what it sounds like to people in the Middle East when some song is like, you know, the kind of like, <laughs> yeah, 100%. I thought this is going to be easier. Um, all right. I'm going to say the second one was Eastern European and the first one was Big Five. I want to add an uh, element to the game. Oh, my yeah. God. In hey, addition recall. to saying which one you think is a Big Five, I also want you to guess which Big Five country you think it is. Oh, jeez. I'm going to say the first one was Italy. I feel why you said that. I feel the vibe. Unfortunately, the first one was Moldova. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And the second one was the UK. Really? Yeah, so the Those first people were native <laughs> English speakers? Those people could speak English, yeah. I... They can't sing English, but okay. they can speak it. <laughs> I'm sort of shocked by that, actually. Yeah. Moldova's I Want Your Love 2015. Right. Not a great song, but I definitely right. think the level <laughs> of production much better. Also, the the UK's number. This was 2015. Australia was in Eurovision this year by special invitation. Correct. And they skipped the semifinals. I remember the song was a fantastic song. Yeah, well, the singer was probably really rested. Didn't have to compete in any semifinals. Big time difference, though. They were just like, jet lag was my semifinal. But moving (laughs) to 2008. Okay, 
Okay, he's carrying like a beach ball here. Did he just suck helium? <laughs> oh my god, I kind of love this. Some of the ones I've seen are trying so hard to be quirky and it's sort of like irritating. But like this guy, I, I got like genuinely weirdo vibes from him. Yeah, I was like, Josh is gonna like this one. I will say that. <laughs> All right, let's see what this one is. Okay, the first one was Big Five. The second one was Eastern European. Nailed it. Which country would you guess that the of the Big Five that the first one is? France. Oh my God! Yes, you nailed it. He's totally. He's so French. He's like he's like the Frenchest man I've ever seen. So his name is Sebastian Tellier. He was nearly run out of town for this act in France (laughs) because it was in English. France does not send songs in English to Eurovision. Yeah. Like literally, this was- no, I would imagine that. So I think he's the Frenchiest, but I also think yeah. everybody else in France is even Frenchier. I will say that the second clip- Ah, uh, um, Yeah, with North Macedonia or former Yugoslav Republic Rebel. of Macedonia, ever since, I think, 2019, they're now called North Macedonia. They said it was to get into NATO, but maybe it was really Eurovision. Especially as a kid, Eurovision is where you started noticing that it's like, oh, Czechoslovakia, it's not Czechoslovakia this year. Because it would always be funny to me when they would throw over the votes to, now we're going to go to former Yugoslav Republic of North Macedonia. And they would never fit the name on screen, so it said F.Y.R. Macedonia. So now moving to Eurovision 2023. Um, oh, all right. It's just like when they try to do metal at Eurovision, it's just like... I know, so I know. Yeah, it's it's but the worst. The interesting I, I, I just have to say, no, but, I am so glad to have another American where this like no, music... No, but any time it's happened, it's always like an established metal band. It's, yeah, the costume, it's just so schlock though. I think metal is a lot of schlock. Metal for straight people is like what, what certain things for gay people are, where you're like, yes, it's over the top. Yes, it's camp. You can really read authenticity, I think, between the stuff that actually is like good versus not. But okay, so Josh, initial reactions to that first clip? <laughs> <laughs> His hair was cool. <laughs> I think Josh did to that number what a local newspaper does to a kid show when they hate it. And it's like, <laughs> I can't believe those kids learned all of those lines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, second clip. I heard them scream it was too Is that an MPC, that thing? The Eurovision LCD sound system? (laughs) A little bit. It's got a bit of a hipster vibe. See, I would have guessed this was like 2008 or 9. Time is a construct in Eurovision. It's like certain genres of music at like Eurovision-ified. I think that that's the thing with the chorus of that song. Ultimately, it has to be performed in an arena of 25,000 people. So it's like, Mm. you can try and be a little indie, like, oh, we've got this like rhythmic drum pattern. And then it's like, no, you gotta in the chorus, that it's expansive and big. I'm gonna say 
the first one was Eastern European and the second one was some stayed stuck up Western European country. Germany? Okay, so this is incredibly interesting. Okay. Because you are wrong. <laughs> okay. But you did get the big how, five how wrong? correct. So, the, so okay. the first number is the big five number. What is glitter is Germany's entry for 2023. Huh. Okay. Sunlights was Latvia's entry. This was one that was put on this list with a little bit of an agenda, which is that right. like, I do think your reaction is 100% the reaction that most people would have, particularly given the point of view of Western European nations who are in Eurovision, which is that like, if we get rid of the hierarchy, if we get rid of all of these rules, we are going to be nothing but like Eastern European camp. It's time to move to 2016. I will I don't know if I can make an American football reference on the show, but he looks a lot like Trey Lawrence, the quarterback of the Jacksonville Jaguars. I mean, you absolutely can, just neither of us will understand. <laughs> yeah. It's the like wolves. the wolves of his spirit coming out. The wolves are... The wolves of uh, yeah. Euro Trevor Lawrence are, uh, yeah. <laughs> are like coming up on the Eurovision stage. Yeah, no, the wolves are, are definitely a strong choice. Josh, initial reactions to that number? Wolves... Hair. <laughs> wolves hair. That's my reaction. Yeah, yeah, wolves hair, which actually I think is uh one of the more positive reviews. No, I that, think that, that's... that number got. Come on raise your bottle cry. You are the one who never dies. I like the second song better. Okay. So I'm trying to like game theory it out now. Many people have tried to get into the psychology of Charlie and no one has yeah, succeeded. So I've, I've been trying for decades. I'm going to say the second one was Eastern European, but I don't feel great about that guess. On the first one, what is the okay. big country you would select? Germany? I'm really sad to break the news to you that it's incorrect. I, I had a feeling. It's the second one that is a big five. And the big five country is Spain. Okay. I buy that. The Make first sense. one was Belarus. My agenda normally is to advance the interests of the non-Big Five countries. I will say everything that Belarus sends to Eurovision has a soup song of the fascism to it. Is he like a Lukashenko nephew or something? He is actually not. But do you think Lukashenko would probably, of all of the competitive authoritarian, semi-authoritarian leaders, the most interested in Eurovision? Moving right. to Eurovision 2010. Final round. You bring the sunshine. I'll bring the good time. We're doing Euro Jersey Boys. <laughs> yes. Euro Boys. Euro Boys, which is a term that I've Googled several times. <laughs> <laughs> that was the original title of Czech Hunter. <laughs> it's sort of Jersey Boys, but it's got like... Marky Mark dancers behind him. Yes, yeah. which they can't afford on Broadway. <laughs> I don't think it really does sound good to me. <laughs> yeah. I like the Eurovision numbers better that are more like contemporary future oriented, I've realized. Like the <laughs> yes. sort, of, yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of retro ones. Yeah, because it gets pastiche. The one warning I'm going to give you on the next one is that okay. unfortunately the chorus gives it away. So you are not going to hear the chorus. It's like glory, glory to Alexander Lukashenko. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Right, Josh, what are you seeing? This is acapella. Um, Do you remember Rockapella? Well, the second one, it, it, it's like you got the Rockapella thing and then the almost bouncy horn thing comes yeah. in in the middle. And they're playing the fake instruments like they're the Weebles or something. <laughs> um, I will just put my cards on the table and say, I'm a big fan of that number. I'm going to say the f- first one was Big Five. Italy? Yes, I will say you are correct that the first one is Big Five. Hey. It was not Italy. Oh. But it was the UK. <laughs> so uh, actually that now that you say that, I totally the additional buy. points. Yeah. The second one is a number called Eastern European Funk. Uh which is the <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh what country it, are they from? It's a yeah. Lithuanian number. What's kind of great, and unfortunately I had to cut around this, the lyrics of this song that they sent to Eurovision include we've had it pretty tough but that's okay we like it rough we'll settle the score survived the reds and two world wars so this is a lithuanian song with the chip on its shoulder and i think if i were to describe my musical taste it would be a lithuanian song with the chip on its shoulder so no, that's incredible the thing i was sort of like expecting is is like my sort of rule for how i know i'm in eastern europe when i'm traveling is that there's like ear-shattering house music playing at breakfast. Yes, there is like a lot of Eastern European pop that's very house, that's very techno. Mm. Um, What tends to get sent to Eurovision is like a little more elevated than that. And I will say from my point of view, a little more elevated than what tends to come out of Western Europe, right? Like it's like Mm. they're sending their artists like with a capital A. Like you said, when the singing turkey would never have come from Eastern Europe. Mm. Josh, would yes. you say that this game has taught you anything at all about your vision? <laughs> and yeah. also to lower the bar slightly <laughs> on that is, uh, yeah. do, you, do you have any thoughts? Uh, I love that my question was like, what have you learned? Charlie said, uh, let's change it to any thoughts at all. That made sense what you said about how new, the new Europe countries, as Don Rumsfeld would call them, that they sort of take it a little more seriously. They're sending their artists and like, I don't want to like plug my book too much, but like no, the framing device for it was, I went to a soccer tournament for unrecognized countries. Is the World Cup for places like Abkhazia or Somaliland. Like these, these international competitions, they're a way of showing your legitimacy. It's like showing you belong and like in the club. It sort of makes sense to me that... Maybe countries that have like a little more of a chip on their shoulder about being the the European family of nations are not sending singing turkeys. Coming from what you know about European institutions and the way that they navigate between wanting to project a value of like democracy and but also having to live in the reality that you need larger countries to be on board, either for financial reasons, either for like security Mm. reasons. What's the way that you would sort of like navigate the situation? You inevitably end up contradicting yourself. In the book I was writing, I was looking at FIFA, the the like World Soccer Federation. I was was in Abkhazia, this like Russian-backed separatist enclave in Georgia, which is obviously not a member of FIFA. They're not a UN member state either, but they're like, what about Kosovo? Why can't we? You try to apply universal standards, but it, but it, it's sort of like very much in the eye of the beholder. The rules-based international order is always going to open itself up to 
accusations of hypocrisy. People lose sight of how much progress has been made since like Europe's experience in the first half of the 20th century (laughs) and what would be lost if they actually disappeared. Basically, I'm saying like Eurovision's is pre- preventing World War III. The next World War. Well, so we here's the thing it. is you need an institution to remind you that the most important goal is love, love, peace, peace. peace. Yes. <laughs> what always strikes me is that like when Putin justifies this, he always refers to the UN Charter and he's, no, we're protecting the rights of minorities. This is our right to collective self-defense. Like the countries that are just wanting to like exercise naked power like they use the language of the rules-based international order i think it's one of those interesting things that you could either say is positive or negative like you could be like the fact that putin makes these arguments about international law means that international law is meaningless right but secondarily like there is something about the fact that putin has to make the argument yes there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy in this idea of the rules-based international order. And yes, you have to acknowledge the muddle of it, but actually it's better than the alternative. It's like what you said about like the decline of wars, having the ideal out there and having enough credibility that it limps on. Yeah. Probably in the end, better. I'll sign on to that. And which of the big five do you think that came from? (laughs) (laughs) Josh, thank you so much for being on the pod. I've been very excited to come on the show. Yes, I'm so glad we got to have you on. Charlie, the road to your vision can be a complicated one. And it's so can exhausting. The, and so can the road to get this episode out. <laughs> but, you know, both of them has still reached its final goal. And both of them have power and inequality at their core. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what do we have up next time, Magnus? So next week, we're going to be talking all about the spectacle that is Eurovision. The production that has to happen behind the scenes is mind-blowing. And to sort of help us pull back that curtain, we have an interview with Yerman Nenov, who was the Ukrainian creative director of Eurovision 2023. And then we speak with Suri, who represented the UK in 2018. It's kind of insane how these four-hour broadcasts with no commercial breaks can, for the most part, happen with almost no mistakes. That wasn't the case for Suri. Finally, uh, Izzy Uncut is uh, going to drop by and play a game with us about spectacle at Eurovision. I've been in the audience when she jumped from the top of a bar into splits. The game we play with Izzy is based off of that iconic move of hers. It's a game we're calling Cooter Smash or Cooter Pass. But that's next week. Yes. And until then, happy Happy Eurovision. Eurovision.